Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. What is happening? I'm at home here by myself. It's the last day of being away from my partner and my little boy for nine days. Little Rufus is six months old now. And they've been in Perth visiting friends and I just got back yesterday from Melbourne. So we've been in different places. And obviously I'm used to having time away from my partner from time to time, but this is the first time being away from my little boy, and it has been a strangely and surprisingly affecting experience. Actually, I really didn't anticipate the potency of the emotional pull and and, and to struggle so much with the separation. So even though the airport pickup is ridiculously early tomorrow morning, I can't wait. Isn't that sweet? That's so sweet. Even as I'm saying it, I'm like, oh, that's kind of sweet. Uh, Other than that, I've just had a great week in Melbourne with my closest friends over there. Uh, and also sharing a few thoughts at a faith community there, uh, in particular talking about some of the ideas around the spirit and the Christian tradition and how some forms of talk about experiencing the spirit, uh, which I very much grew up with, can at times be kind of toxic and traumatizing actually, but in other ways the presence or activity of what Christians call the spirit can, I think, function to break down exclusionary barriers and act as an inclusive divine-led movement. So that was a good time. And some great conversations flowed out of flowed out of that. And then while I was there, I also interviewed my friend Ben, and uh, it's a conversation that's going to be on the next episode. Uh, and so there's upcoming two or three episodes. Um, haven't quite decided yet. Will be a discussion around faith and sexuality and stuff like that. So the interview with Ben's going to kick this off, this this off next time. So that's going to be great. In the meantime, here we are in episode twenty two. Oh, one other thing uh, I forgot to say. Uh, one thing that has come up several times in recent weeks with different people is about the little musical bit that occurs once in every episode after I typically say, this is episode of blah, blah, blah from The Shift. Let's get into it. Uh, I don't know why I had to put on a voice there because it's, it's my voice usually anyway. It's quite funny because I think some people have been like, you know, that's an interesting choice, that piece of music. And then others are like, do you think you should maybe have like a better piece of of something like maybe we should talk to someone about getting you a, like a cool bit of music. Anyway, what happened was in the week before the first episode came out, I had someone lined up to help produce a nice little original piece of musical brilliance that I could use. And then they just got super jammed with work and couldn't do it. And so I didn't want to push back the launch of the podcast anymore either. And I thought, oh, maybe I can just do something to fill in for the first episode. So there's like this loop browser thing on GarageBand, which is um, the Mac recording thing. And you can put a little drum loop. Um, so I picked one of those and then you can turn your little typing keyboard into a musical keyboard and so I think I was hitting like the letter D and the letter J or something like that backwards, backwards and forwards and I made myself a little little musical loop and I thought oh, well, I'll, I'll just put that in for the first episode and then I'll come up with something you know professional after that. And then, you know, I just, I, I put it in the second episode and then I put it in the third one and then I, I sort of grew attached to it and so now it's in every episode. So, you know, that's the story behind that. I kind of like it now. Hey, what can I say? Um, Anyway, on with the episode. I wanted to pick up, uh, we're still in in the Flesh series, and I wanted to pick up on a reflection from the previous episode, uh, episode 21, and my conversation with Dr. Shane Clifton. If you haven't listened to that, Shane is a professor of theology and ethics, but also suffered a spinal cord injury in 2010. That means he now lives as a quadriplegic. And during the chat, we had he had come from the Pentecostal tradition, as have I, uh, in our earlier years. And, and during this chat, we had a brief conversation about healing and the way that healing has been thought of within some streams of the Christian tradition, and maybe ours in particular. 
and that for the disability community, his reflection was that healing and, and the language and the attitudes around healing and prayer can sometimes be like a traumatic or even offensive conversation. So I wanted to come back to that and reflect a little more on it. And, you know, as I say, having spent my early life in Pentecostalism that focuses a lot on healing. Um, and, of course, it's not only just in my particular tradition of Christianity. Uh, it's in the Jesus story. So I guess that needs talking about, right? And the stories of Jesus are filled with these accounts of healing and miracles which take place in the body. And and sometimes they seem to be almost core to what Jesus is up to. And so then traditions like mine, like the Pentecostal and Charismatic Christian and Christian traditions have said, well, that's something we should be doing and seeing also. And so then there's a lot of ministry and effort put into and whole ministry sometimes built around trying to replicate or generate these kinds of healing miracles today. But this can kind of raise all sorts of questions for us, I think. Well, it does for me. It has for me. Because when God does get involved, um, when does God get involved? When did God choose to heal and why? And is that something to do with us or with God? Um, because that conversation gets complicated pretty quickly. Because if God can get involved so regularly, if God wants to, and so obviously, you know, like in these biblical stories, then why doesn't God get involved more often? So do we try and figure out how and why God might choose to act or heal or intervene? What do we do when we want God to do that and nothing happens? And what happens when it seems like if, I think if we're completely honest, this is the reality most of the time, most of the time, if not all of the time for many of us, we want God to do something something like heal, but nothing happens. And these are important questions for us to wrestle with, although they're not new. But I think it's important for us to be really honest about it because I think there's a lot of bluff and bluster in certain streams of Christianity and other religious traditions too, I might say, about the claims that that religion might make about healing and the reality of it in people's lives. Now, for some of us, you might not have even given this a second thought, you know, but for others, perhaps we've encountered a particular kind of suffering or crisis in life that make these questions feel more acute, more pronounced, more urgent. And although sometimes people suggest we're better to avoid asking difficult questions and have a simple faith or something like that, I actually think these questions sit at the heart of many people's anxiety about God and sometimes lead to a lack of belief in God entirely. Because if God really does intervene in human lives like this, then why doesn't just God just fix everything and stop the madness? Why is God going around, you know, healing people's sort of backaches and, and, and headaches, giving people parking spaces outside their favourite cafes, but not healing those who are in deep suffering? So, this is episode 22 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. <laughs> So this episode is called, Is Healing a Thing? And even as I start to talk about this, I'm aware that your response to this conversation could be all sorts of things. For some of you, talking about healing might be triggering in the sense that perhaps it's been a lack of healing, a lack of God's intervention that sits right at the core of some of your most difficult experiences in life. While for others of you, it might be that an experience that, that you felt was God healing you or someone close to you 
sits at the very core of one of the most important experiences of your life in a, in a positive sense or maybe to your faith. And my aim in this conversation then is not to um, speak to your experience in specific or try and obliterate your particular point of view. Uh, and so I want to be aware that all sorts of different things could come up for you as you listen to this and as we talk about it. But I'm also aware of a need for honesty in the conversation and a need to talk about some of these things for many of us. So that's what we're going to do. And if you're a regular listener of the podcast, firstly, well done. Uh, secondly, great job. Thirdly, you'll probably know by now that I grew up in a Christian home and spent my childhood and then especially my 20s in the particular kind of Pentecostal spirituality. And in this kind of Christianity, praying and expecting God to answer was kind of assumed, it was an assumed core aspect of the spirituality. You know, you would pray and God would answer you. And in particular, there was a real emphasis on doing that in relation to healing, because I guess healing is the kind of thing you really want God to do a lot of the time. And so, you know, I grew up with these kinds of interpretations of reality, I guess, and versions of spirituality. Uh, there were kind of these these important stories in my own childhood as I look back that were, you know, going to healing meetings or having these own personal kind of experiences where perhaps um, I seemed to get better from something much faster than perhaps people were expecting and that was because of the prayer uh, that I received. Um, and so integral to kind of my forming spirituality was the sense that God was always dynamically responding to these prayers and sometimes that got complicated um, you know, trying to pray because I'm short-sighted and so I need to wear glasses. And as a little kid, that kind of was a bit annoying. So I used to try and desperately pray that God would heal my eyes. But that seemed to be something that never really took place, despite my levels of uh, insistence and persistence and desperation and, and mustering as much faith as I could. So I was a bit confused about that because I had these kinds of principles that I've been given. You know, if you pray with enough faith, then you'll be able to experience healing. And yet... It didn't always seem to work. And yet there were these other stories that suggested maybe sometimes it did. And then, you know, as I grew older and into my sort of young adulthood, I, I really, I had growing up with these stories and then reading the stories of Jesus in the Bible, I was really keen to kind of replicate this and to develop a kind of ministry that stepped into this. And I was like, if I, if I get fervent enough and pray enough and spend enough time somehow in sort of God's presence, that's the way I would describe it, um, then eventually I will receive some kind of power or authority or presence that will enable me to step into this realm of being able to see people get healed. And it really, you know, pushed and shaped a lot of the fervency that I had at that time in my life, and especially in my early 20s. Yet, I guess this strange kind of thing happened as I continued to get older. One of the things that happened was that kind of dynamic healing ministry that would send me across the world delivering healing to the nations, never never quite eventuated. Um, and then, you know, I was in a community and, and we used to, a large church community that used to have a space in the, in the gathered service where people would write down their prayer requests and then they would be read out up the front by whoever was leading the service. Uh, so that they would write down, you know, prayers for because someone in their family or, or they had cancer or were desperately sick or there was someone had was, you know, was dying or um, had it been in an accident. Like these really, really um, desperate requests and as a community we would all then pray together that God would 
intervene. And then at the same time, there were these people could fill out praise reports, you know, and the, the point of that was to show that prayers were being answered. And week after week after week, I would hear these prayer requests and praise reports. And what I sort of noticed, even though I didn't want to notice it, was was that over time, the, the praise reports were often things like, God answered my prayers and I passed my exams, or God answered my prayers and I got that new job I wanted, or God answered my prayers and we got that house that we were trying to buy. And look, I'm not wanting to say, again, I'm not uh, naming people's experiences as to whether that was or wasn't God. My just reflection on that was there's this profound dissonance between the desperate request for prayer that also included some of those other things, but but what I didn't hear very often was praise reports of those really serious things being addressed. And, and if they were, maybe it was, you know, oh, praise God, the, the, the treatment's been working, you know, something like that. Again, not saying this is all or nothing or whatever. It's just something I noticed in my experience of listening to those stories being told week after week after week. And then as you get older, well, for me anyway, I'd had a pretty sheltered and good environment growing up. You know, I'd not really encountered grief or tragedy or crisis. Uh, and neither had people close to me particularly often. And I was pretty disconnected, I think, emotionally anyway, so maybe I didn't pick up on it. But as I got a bit older and got a bit more emotionally connected to people and to myself, and also just began to observe the lives of people around me, I realised sort of these crises were were erupting. Um, And prayer didn't seem to be fixing them in the way that I might have anticipated (laughs) And then over time, you know, uh, in 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 more recent years, having you know really good friends die, or our own journey even of trying to have children for nine years, and the kind of narrative that gets formed around that experience of, you know, we'll we'll pray for you, fast for you, and which is all really beautiful and. It's people's desire to see something good happen for you. And yet at the same time, I'm sitting there with the reality of the experience going, what does that mean about God if God hasn't, for, in our case, for example, given us children yet because he's just God's just waiting for an extra few prayers to arrive before the miracle is released. So really those views of God and prayer and healing start to become a bit difficult, a bit problematic. Um, complicated. And so I have this kind of weird journey, you know, that involves these experiences that I look back on. And at the time I would have said, yes, this is God at work in my life. This is God intervening and doing healing miracles. And then then many experiences sin as I've gotten older, which have made me wonder much more deeply about whether God really does intervene in that kind of way. And maybe this gets exacerbated when you begin to see the numbers of times that the claimed miracles and healings at these kind of big healing revival meetings are often not quite accurate, somewhat disingenuous. And if you went through the community several weeks later, as sometimes has happened, what you find is that the healing miracles don't always match after the fact. Then to further this, when I was doing my science training in biomedical science, one of the things we were learning about was the placebo effect, you know, in clinical trials. So you give, you're, you're trying to help somebody cure, you're trying to cure a particular illness or give them a, a treatment that might alleviate some symptoms. 
And, you know, you do these double-blind placebo trials where not everybody gets the drug. Some people get sugar pills, um, but they think they could might be taking the drug. They don't know if they're on the drug or not. And the reason we have to do that is because the data clearly shows that a certain percentage, quite a significant percentage of people, will in fact improve in their symptoms just from taking the sugar pills if they think they might be taking the drug, which means there's all sort of psychology going on here. And so then you start to ask the question, well, is, is that just what's happening with the healing meetings? People are essentially taking a sugar pill. So what do we do with all of that? <laughs> I'm raising some issues. Um... You know, did we just toss it out? Did we just say, well, stuff it then? Um, not interested? Skeptical? What do we do? Well, what I want to do is, is maybe a little bit of background as to how we get here and into a particular Christian climate with these kinds of beliefs, especially in the way that they've been formed, and then see if we can make some observations or reflections on some ways I think might be helpful for us. Um, so... Although I mentioned before that healing was really important and central to the Jesus story, it's, it's not always been as prominent a theme within the life of the church. Um, and at times, you know, much of the history of the church is not focused really on these kinds of supernatural healing miracles in this kind of way. And that's not to say there, weren't, there wasn't belief in some kind of supernatural force or presence, it's just there wasn't a significant um, emphasis on this kind of healing. Now, at times what you get through history is a few healings attributed here and there to the saints in particular. Uh, and then later on, there were said to be, in, in quite a superstitious way, healings that could come if you, you know, that you could experience if you came into contact with certain relics or artifacts of the Christian tradition, whether it was, you know, you got to touch a, center, a splinter from the cross or a, um, at one point, I think in church history, there were a number of uh, supposed foreskins of Jesus from the circumcision, circ you know, doing the rounds from uh, town to town that people could come and um, get close to, I guess, uh, and then experience some kind of blessing or, or miracle in their life. So there have been times through the tradition, um, often, aside from those kind of more um, superstitious ways, he healing is often associated with these these mysterious workings of God, Um that one hopes in some way and prays that might take place, but there wasn't necessarily a sense of formularization or certainty that went with that. Uh, and healing ministry also compelled a significant Christian interest in medical care for the sick and the suffering um, in the tradition of Christianity, especially in those early centuries after Jesus. Now, in some locations, especially the majority world, you think Latin America and Asia and Africa, healing, I think, has probably carried a far greater emphasis than in the West, especially in more recent times. Uh, but I live in New Zealand, and we've had our own periods of real fascination with healing. Uh, in the 1920s, there was a British evangelist by the name of Smith Wigglesworth who came through the country holding these healing meetings that seemed to captivate a bunch of people, and the newspaper reports and the meetings where people were coming and experiencing these miracles, um, and... Then in North America, in the 1950s and onwards, people like Kenneth Hagen and Oral Roberts and so on. So let's think a little bit about where that comes from. The contemporary, what we, what we would call the Pentecostal charismatic movements that emerged in the 20th century focused heavily on the supernatural power of God, you know, the power of the Spirit um, to intervene in our lives and answer to prayer. And this, this was experienced in all sorts of ways. Some was just personally transformative experiences, but there was also this desire that 
access to the Spirit in this kind of way could result in healing in answer to prayers of faith. And in the Western world in particular, this has been shaped to some degree by by North America. Hello, North America. Uh, hi there. Uh, so it's theologies of healing that find their origins in the thinking of, of a gentleman by the name of E.W. Kenyon. Now, uh, some of these insights come from Catherine Bowler's um, PhD work on the prosperity gospel and faith and health and wealth teaching in the US. Uh, so I'm, I'm borrowing some ideas from there. Kenyon integrated this idea of new thought principles with his understanding of the gospel. Now, new, new thought was a movement in the late 1800s in North America that emphasized the idea, and it wasn't a particularly Christian uh, movement, not a particularly Christian philosophy, but the idea was that thoughts are more powerful than physical reality itself. And so our physical reality is a projection of our minds. And if our physical reality is a projection of our minds and what we think, then the world around us can be changed by our thoughts. So there was this whole movement of, of trying to reshape our internal thoughts so that they might reshape our external world. In fact, there are versions of this kind of thing floating around all, all over the place, not just in Christianity. And so this is a, this is a particular you know, train, of, train of thought and, and, and a little bit of a movement in North America at this time. And E.W. Kenyon, who's a Christian, decides to merge these ideas with Christianity. And so... For Kenyon, it wasn't just the fact that we can think thoughts and change reality. It's that we can speak words with faith and that can shape reality. And so prayer, for example, for healing or for other things um, could be spoken in faith. And if it was with enough faith and enough confidence and enough certainty, then it would transform the physical, the external physical reality. Now for Kenyon... He also suggested that the name of Jesus. He, he had this whole kind of legal framework that went that went with it. You know, the the sort of we had lost uh, the privilege and access to health and and so on because of um, because of sin and the fall, and we're given over our rights to the devil. But then Jesus had died to give us our rights back. And so if we prayed in the name of Jesus, then this was like a legal seal that assured that the word of faith that we'd spoken would come to pass. And so you get this classic. Uh, endeavor within Pentecostal and charismatic prayers to always finish in the name of Jesus because that was like a seal that would like seal the deal and make the prayer happen. So that's where that kind of comes from. Then there's a guy by the name of Kenneth Hagen who in the 1950s picks up on Kenyon's thinking. Kenyon had written some, some books and Hagen then takes them and merges them now with the growing Pentecostal spirituality that's around. And so... What happens is the influence of people like Kenyon and Hagen on healing theologies and healing approaches in the West and in Pentecostal Christianity has, to, has been to push towards a formularization of healing. In other words, if you gather enough faith, enough authority, enough confidence, then you can pray for healing and expect it to come to pass. And the more sure you are that it will happen, the more likely it is to happen. Now, that's an interesting um, development and in reality, people's experience in life seldom matches this kind of framework, right? And so what often happens once the intensity fades is profound feelings of disappointment and maybe blame of self or the devil or whatever it is. Maybe I didn't have enough faith or maybe the devil was attacking me and, and generated enough prayer. Often for people, what, what happens on the other side of disappointment is disillusionment with faith entirely, but that hasn't stopped... The, the faith and healing movement and over time it then turned into a prosperity movement, you know, because if, if God is going to give you physical healing 
in response to your faith, then maybe God is going to bless your entire material life. And that might include your finances. And in the end, I think what some of these people have found is that making money is easier to demonstrate than supernatural miracles. Anyway, while most Christians, I think, don't adopt the extremes of this kind of faith healing movement, I do think that some version of this kind of idea is still actually present for people. The idea that if we're good, if we pray, if we're faithful, maybe if we give money, and if we pray with faith, then God will bless us and God will answer us and God will heal us. Um, Catherine Bowler, who I mentioned before, who wrote a PhD on the prosperity gospel, has subsequently written a book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. It's a brilliant book. Um, written from the perspective of the fact that having having written this dissertation, this thesis on analysing the prosperity gospel and crit- criticising it and critiquing it, um, she experienced her own diagnosis with terminal cancer. And the recognition that came to her in that experience was although that she didn't hold to the health and wealth gospel, there was still a subtle belief sitting under the surface that as long as I am a good Christian and do the right things and behave in the right way, things will go well for me and I'll be healthy. And yet here she was, having followed all of those principles and having this catastrophic diagnosis. You know, So she writes very eloquently and, and honestly about that experience. So if we want to move away, and I'm going to suggest we should. <laughs> I know I said I wasn't going to impose upon your experience, but from a, from a theological point of view, I'm going to suggest that we move away from this formularization of healing, this kind of, if you just have enough faith and certainty, then you'll be healed. Because I think it actually damages people. It damages people because when they don't experience healing, it's their fault. Um, plus, it often ends up being dishonest because no one wants to be blamed and no one wants to say, I wasn't healed. And so, you know, at these healing meetings, you might pull some young 15-year-old kid up out of the crowd who's maybe got a sore leg or got a sore arm or got a sore back and and the faith preacher, you know, prays for them and then says, how do you feel? Are you healed? And, and the young person is standing there, maybe in front of thousands of people, And the expectation is, of course, they're going to say yes. And so they do. But I don't always know that that's what's happened. So what can we do to find a healthy and honest way through this? Perhaps we could start by taking a backward step and actually reflecting on what we think about God in the first place and about divine intervention full stop. And we've already talked a bit on in a shift about you know, my perspective, that I'm no longer comfortable with this granddaddy God in the sky who sits up there dispensing answers from the clouds. So instead we begin to talk about God as the source of all life and as the source of all existence, of God as love. But then what does it mean to say that God acts? Does God actually act? Does God then heal? Well, perhaps if God is truly, you know, look, I'm, th- these are unanswerable questions to some degree, but I still want to offer some reflections. If God is truly in and through all things, and I think that's the most helpful way I've found to think about God, then rather than divine intervention, let's say divine healing, being something that comes from out there somewhere, we're actually talking about the divine who is present and at work within the movement of creation in the universe itself, which means that we're not really in the business of trying to convince a God out there to come and do something down here, or even trying to talk God into something. 
In fact, the way it seems that God is at work is through the processes of our physical and embodied reality itself, not just our own, but that of all of the physical universe. In fact, there's no other way that we could even experience something divine, because this is the way we engage in, understand, and experience reality itself. So the only way that we could be aware of where God might be present is actually in the midst of our physical and embodied reality rather than coming from somewhere outside of it. Wolfhart Pannenberg, who's a German theologian, talks about, as a, talks about miracles as, as really a, a religious term for an unusual event. In other words, we use the language of miracle to describe something that doesn't normally happen but it doesn't necessarily mean it's contrary or contradictory to the laws of nature. Because if all of nature, of all things, are grounded in God, then miracles are really just unusual things that happen, maybe through laws of nature that we don't understand, that we interpret then through our religious paradigm. Which is why some people can look at the same event and say this was a miracle, and others look at the same event and say this was clearly not a miracle. Think about being sick at home in bed and what you'd really love is just a warm or a hot bowl of soup. And so you pray to receive a hot bowl of soup. And then maybe an hour later, you hear a knock on the door and your neighbour turns up. And they say, I heard you were sick and I thought I'd make you up some soup and so I brought it over. Now that's just a small encounter. And if you were approaching that through a particular kind of religious paradigm, you might say, this was a miracle. This was an answer to prayer. And yet from another paradigm, you might say, this is a coincidence. How could you possibly say that that was God supernaturally intervening? And so rather than being maybe a violation of the laws of nature, which in fact isn't possible, it's not possible to violate the laws of nature. Miracles could be a violation of what we understand of the laws of nature and how we define them and describe them. But in fact, we can't experience anything that's a violation of the laws of nature because everything we experience is a part of nature itself. Paul Tillich actually says, uh, Paul Tillich's a, a, a theologian in the, the 50s and 60s, talks about the idea that a miracle is, again, an unusual or astonishing event that points us toward the mystery of being. And so maybe at the very least, miracles, or what we call miracles, are one of the ways in which we, we say, this. I think there's something more going on here, even if we don't always quite know how to explain what that means or how it happens. So what does this mean for healing? Well, rather than, I don't know, trying to characterise healing as the spectacular thing from out there somewhere, that if we have enough faith we can call it into being, perhaps instead we accept the frailty and brokenness and suffering of the human condition. But we also live with a desire for the, for the good, right? For the good outcome. We live with a desire for things to move toward a loving outcome. And so in that sense, we do hope and maybe we would pray that reality itself will somehow respond to God's loving presence that is hiding within it. But there's no way to control this process and in fact, I have my suspicions sometimes on my, on my sceptical days, I'm not sure this ever really happens. And on my faith-filled days, I'm okay with a little bit of mystery. <laughs> um, you know, I'm a contradiction inside myself about some of this. But 
whatever the case, there's no way to control this process. And I think ultimately we have to be okay in the mystery of that. But in all of that, we can still see God being present in it. And this means much being much more honest, I think, than many pro-healing kind of Christian evangelists or healing revival ministers are. Because to be honest, there's just there's so much bullshit around healing meetings and who is apparently being healed and from what. And all of this does is slowly or quickly inoculate people against having any kind of faith or spirituality at all. And sometimes I think this means that we shouldn't be too quick to assume who needs healing and from what, you know. Sometimes it's those who we would characterize as well who are really in need of a little more healing. You know, Shane mentioned in the last episode, um, you know, the person with the disability or perhaps the person with something like Down syndrome, do they need healing? Or do we need healing because of our exclusionary attitudes and our oppressive and dismissive social norms and social constructs that marginalise people who have that experience? Who really needs the healing here? And so perhaps we're all invited to acknowledge our human frailty and vulnerability and weakness. But the story of Jesus suggests, then, that the divine enters into the suffering of the embodied human experience rather than taking us out of it. The purpose, I think, of so many, the temptation in so much of religion, no matter where it comes from, is to in some way escape our suffering or transcend our suffering or to imagine we don't have suffering or to just simply say, I'm suffering because I would rather have something else. And so, uh, you know, all sorts of ways to try and get out of the experience of suffering. And I totally understand that. I totally understand that impulse. And yet, you can't avoid it. Maybe that, maybe that those approaches work if, because I'm suffering with a hard day at work, but I'm not sure that they work. For the refugee at the border, I'm not sure they work. For the person being slaughtered by ISIS, I'm not sure that sense of trying to just get outside of your suffering works in those situations. And so somehow, I don't know why, but the human experience is a frail one. It's a vulnerable one. And the story of Jesus suggests that the divine is present in our suffering, not to, re- not to say to glory in our suffering or to say, ah, yes, God is doing something amazing, but that God becomes our companion, becomes present to us. And so maybe our faith doesn't take us into a place of escaping our bodies and our suffering but instead to embrace and connect to our humanness, to our bodies. And to be honest, in, in many respects, about the, good, the goodness of our bodies and the amazing way in which they keep us alive and keep us so well so much of the time. And when we encounter sickness and suffering, perhaps we can cultivate a desire that God, whatever we mean by that term, might be present. And to engage in prayer then might be to express our desire that the reality we're experiencing would move toward a loving and good outcome. But this is not just about supernatural bolts of lightning from the sky. This is about all of the ways in which we experience healing in all aspects of our lives and all of the ways in which ultimately we have to accept our vulnerability, which is something I think we're desperate to avoid. And perhaps this is what it comes down to at the end. We are vulnerable, but we don't want to be. Our loved ones are vulnerable, but we don't want them to be. 
I don't. But perhaps the path to a life of meaning is, is not found in all of the ways we try and smother our feelings of vulnerability, you know. And Pentecostal healing meetings are, are one way to smother our feelings of vulnerability, to make it feel like we've got power and control. But we do it in other ways too. All the people who might mock those who believe in supernatural miracles can still use their power at work over others or the social power that they have within certain hierarchies to cover over those feelings of vulnerability or to buy more impressive houses or cars or clothes to make ourselves feel important and powerful and in control. Whatever it might be that we try to use to avoid facing the reality that we are vulnerable, that life is fleeting and we are not in control. So instead of that, instead of seeking to smother our vulnerability, to turn the dial up to 10 so that we don't have to hear that sense of frailty that sits beneath the surface. Instead, perhaps we can find meaning by embracing the ways in which we actually do contribute and can contribute to the kind of healing the world needs. The work of justice, the work of reconciliation, the work of inner transformation as we seek to process and learn from our experiences and from our pain and from our crisis. To engage in the work of social change and transformation as we seek to, uh, to transform our communities so that weak, marginalised people might find places of belonging and identity and empowerment. And maybe this is what healing looks like most of the time. And in fact, I think that's what the miracles of Jesus ultimately were much more concerned with, with the way in which it transformed the exclusionary barriers that kept so many of those suffering people at the edge and at the margin. And so if a mysterious miracle pops up from time to time, I'm pretty happy with that. I might even ask for it when I really don't know what else to do. But it's not the only place I'm going to find the divine present. And in fact, if I'm honest, it's not the place where I usually find it at all. So that's our conversation on healing. That's episode 22. Next time on In The Shift, we're continuing our In The Flesh series. And we're going to begin a conversation on sexuality and faith. And in the meantime, of course, you can, as always, connect via Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, via intheshift.com, or you can email me at michael at intheshift.com. Get in touch. Let me know what you think. Tell me your stories. Thanks again to Reese Mayshall for his sound-manipulating skills on this audio. I'll see you next time on In The Shift.